Welcome to Dialogue Across Difference, an event series hosted by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Join us as Center Director Larry Jacobs and guests engage in conversations across the political and policy spectrum on issues of the day. Jacobs. I'm a faculty member at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs, and I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, which is bringing you this program. Um, and I want to welcome you as we move along in our conversation today to join us. You'll see at the bottom of your screen, there's a Q&A button. And that's very important, as you'll see, because we want to get your voice uh, into the conversation. So join us. Feel free to give us clarifying questions or challenging questions, we like them all. That's really helpful. Welcome and thank you for joining today's program, Health Reform Lives. We have a terrific panel today, uh, Sabrina Collette, um, who has a law degree and is a research professor and founder and co-director of the Center on Health Insurance Reforms at Georgetown University's the Court School of um, Public Policy. Um, Sabrina works on state and federal regulation of private health insurance, as well as a number of other topics. Prior to joining Georgetown, she was at the, um, was Director of Health Policy at the National Partnership for Women and Families. Before that, she was at the, the much admired and powerful U.S. Senate Health Education Labor and Pensions Committee, known as HELP for those on the inside. We're also joined by Jim Capretta, who's a senior fellow and holds the Milton Friedman Chair at the American Enterprise Institute. He studies healthcare, entitlements, um, US budget policy, and a number of others. He's also associated with the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington, DC. Before his affiliation with AEI, he worked in the White House uh, as Associate Director of Office of Management and Budget under George H excuse me, George W. Bush, um, 2001 to 2004. It's a great pleasure to introduce my friend and collaborator, Scott Kiefer, who will be offering a welcome. Uh, Scott is Vice President of Public Affairs at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Minnesota. Uh, before that, he was Vice President of Public Policy at America's Health Insurance Plans, and he's a longtime sponsor of ours and a very good partner. Scott? Thank you, Larry, and good afternoon, everyone. I'm real excited uh, to have Sabrina and Jim join us today, uh, in addition to the two of them being two of the best thinkers on health policy. Uh, there are actually two people who I consider dear friends and uh, having worked both of them in previous, previous lives. So we're happy to Zoom them into Minnesota today. Uh, although with uh, 60 degree weather, we may all wish we were in Washington uh, as we think about what's coming in the next uh, week or coming weeks here in Minnesota. So Sabrina, Jim, uh, we hope to see you sometime in Minnesota soon. Uh, soon though, maybe means waiting till April or May sometime next year. We won't uh, invite you in the winter if we even could uh, resume uh, in person, but we're, we're delighted really to hear um, kind of an update and perspective on the Build Back Better Act and uh, also the implications uh, for the existing market. And I know that both Sabrina, who's done some research on the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, uh, including a look here in Minnesota, it's what the impacts are uh, from individual changes in the small group market and other issues. And Jim, uh, someone who's given a lot of thought to sort of the future of employer-based coverage, I think we'll hear a lot about, uh, to use a D DC euphemism again, what we talk about is the interactions uh, with healthcare. And there are potentially a lot of interactions. I think that we know that the uh, subsidies first enacted uh, under the ARPA would be extended for three years under the Build Back Better Act something that uh, we at Blue Cross Blue Shield strongly support. We know that uh, there also would be a federal reinsurance program established for the first time that would allow Minnesota to leverage uh, federal dollars 
for our very successful reinsurance program here, which is in its fifth year, we probably know and have thought less about those interactions. That's sort of fancy Washington speak for uh, what are the effects intended or otherwise on other market segments, on the employer segment, the small group marketplace. Um, and I know that the employer community, and I'll be interested particularly on Jim's perspective of this, has been very concerned about a lowering of the so-called affordability threshold and what that could do, for example, uh, to increase cost sharing or out-of-pocket costs, which we're as concerned about as it relates to people's healthcare spending obligations. Premiums get all the attention, but we don't want a deductible, especially for middle-class individuals to be a barrier to people seeking the care that they need. Uh, so I really look forward to that. Uh, really look forward also to hearing some of the inside baseball. We know that there was a long path to negotiating this legislation. Uh, by my accounts, I think there were about a billion and a half, or excuse me, a trillion and a half in potential healthcare spending in this. And I think that's been brought down, um, you know, by 50% or more. So um, excited uh, for our guest. And last but not least, um, although the two of you aren't necessarily uh, experts on prescription drugs, I'll be interested in some comments on the politics of that issue too, because uh, that's certainly gotten a lot of attention here in Minnesota and around the country as, um, Speaker Pelosi and others have tried to work hard to bring this legislation across the finish line. So thank you again for joining us. Uh, thank you, Larry, for your partnership. Really look forward to the conversation. Thank you, Scott. Okay, um, let's dive in. Um, you know, I've been following health reform as long as you two um, and written a bunch of books about it. And, um, you know, there have been periods when health reform front page news uh, when the Affordable Care Act was debated in 2009, passed in 2010, uh, you know, tremendous amount of debate, uh, kind of 24-7 and huge impacts in building the what's known as the marketplace where individuals can go with subsidies and some protection of, of kind of uh, the rules of the road uh, to buy private health insurance, expansion of Medicaid to help those who are near poor or poor. Um, and then regulations to make sure people get pre who have pre-existing conditions can get covered um, and essential benefits are included and, and, and more. So that was the Affordable Care Act 24-7. Then we had um, lots of bumps after that, but uh, then we had another kind of front page 24-7 cycle when um, Republicans and Donald Trump were elected and the agenda was repeal. And for folks who are not following this as closely as we are, it may surprise you to know that health reform is alive and well, and there are very significant changes that have been happening in 2021. Back in March, the um, American Rescue Plan Act, known as ARPA, was passed, and that provided subsidies and other things. And now we've had, for the last several months, as part of Joe Biden's Build Back Better, uh, proposal, um, an effort negotiated, renegotiated uh, to pick up some of that and add more in. So um, health reform lives. It's quite significant. And you know, I'd like to start with you, Sabrina. Um, what are your expectations? We don't have Build Back Better passed. Um, there is talk about you know, what might happen. Do you think this is going to happen or is this just you know, a lot of chatter in Washington? Well, I don't know that um, the Build Back Better bill as it sits in the House is going to be what the ultimate uh, final passage um, is in terms of substance. I, I do think, however, that there is an imperative for the Democrats in Congress to do something on health care, if for no other reason than the enhanced subsidies that were in the American Rescue Plan Act uh, expire at the end of 2022, and you're going to have right before the midterm elections a bunch of news stories and articles about the fact that all these people, and now the marketplaces are at record high enrollment um, because so many people have been coming in to take advantage of these subsidies, 
all these folks are going to have a massive premium spike um, right before the midterms um, if uh, Congress does not act. So um, I think, you know, whether or not the provisions that are in the House bill survive at the end of the day, I do think that um, many members of Congress will feel a lot of pressure to, at a minimum, extend those arguments. Thank you. And um, Jim, as you kind of looked at at least what's on the table so far as the Build Back Better and the healthcare part of it, you think this is the right direction for America? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, there's some aspects of it I certainly support that uh, uh, I, I find this hard to believe, but I do. I, I think the biggest priority needs to be to close the coverage gap in the non-expansion states in some fashion because those are very poor people who really don't have a viable option for enrollment in health insurance under the current circumstances, which seems kind of, you know, a glaring uh, problem that needs to be addressed one way or another. I'm a little bit surprised, frankly, that they're doing it mainly through enrollment in private insurance. There was a lot of resistance to that for a long time. And so the fact that they're moving forward with that way of going about it, candidly, I think that's, I think that's probably the best way to go at this point. Having said that, I think the big problem with this bill and with sort of policy in general for the last six or seven years is that the, there's not much of a theory for cost control about how to go, you know, go about this. So the bill, Build Back Better's provisions, is really just subsidizing more people into coverage with public money. And you, know, you can do that for a while, but um, anyway. That, I think that's the big problem, and um, I, I don't, I, I don't um, agree with that approach to this. By the way, I'd say my bigger problem is that the Build Back Better bill isn't just healthcare. Obviously, it's a it's a it's a budget plan in addition to being a healthcare plan. And as your introduction at the beginning indicated, I try to work on both fiscal matters and health policy matters. They're related. And in that regard, I don't, I don't support the bill. I think it's way too much. We've already spent in the last few years about $5 trillion on various things, much of it on social spending. Um, the bill has a feel for being kind of a hodgepodge of things that they can get agreement on. It doesn't have a lot of unifying theme to it. The climate, act, uh, climate change provisions are important, but candidly, I think even those can be discussed in terms of how effective they will be. So there's lots of other reasons to worry about the bill beyond healthcare, and most especially its fiscal impact. Uh, so for all those reasons, I would, I, I'm, you know, put me in the column of being opposed. Okay, we're, you've raised a lot of issues, and we're going to kind of circle through and, yeah. and meander through them. Um, but before we do, um, uh, Sabrina, you know, if you look at polls, and I don't know just carping about the Affordable Care Act after it was signed into law in 2010. Probably the biggest complaint is Affordable Care Act, not affordable. So what are the efforts that are being made um, now um, in this moving legislation to try to address that concern? Um, well, the first thing I would say is, and I think uh, Larry, I, I believe it might have been uh, a conversation I had with you early on during the height of the Tea Party movement and the real fear that the law was going to be repealed when um, the Trump administration came in. And I, I just remember very distinctly you saying, look, <laughs> it is it is very hard to take away a, a, a benefit or, a, you know, an, an expansion of a public program politically, and um, that is certainly borne out. I think with respect to the affordability issue, um, I would quibble a little bit with respect to the Medicaid expansion. Um, you know, that has been just an incredible engine for coverage expansion under the ACA, and folks who are in the Medicaid program who are there because of the ACA's Medicaid expansion are getting truly, uh, you know, affordable coverage with no premiums, extremely low um, cost sharing. It, the issue has been with these private marketplaces that um, have come with, uh, I think for many people, particularly uh, middle-class folks, um, high premiums and often very high deductibles. 
Um, and, and that was part of the reason why Congress in the American Rescue Plan Act beefed up those subsidies to try to address the affordability issue. And Jim is absolutely right. Uh, you know, that is essentially, a, it's a caution to strategy, right? So the government has said, we're gonna have the federal taxpayer pick up these costs, um, you know, rather than the individual consumers. Um, there are other ways to go about it, like trying to reduce the costs of medical care uh, and lower premiums that way, but um, that is much more difficult to do politically. Yeah, and just for folks who haven't followed this as closely as we have, there is the private health insurance, again, in the marketplace, which Sabrina was just talking about. And then there was Medicaid, which was a big part of the original Affordable Care Act. Supreme Court said, wait a second, you can't basically strong arm states into this. They get a choice about whether to adopt it or not. And 38 states, including a group of Republican states and some very Republican states, have adopted it sometimes through a voter referenda. Um, but there's still 12 states uh, that have not adopted. And so this issue about the coverage gap is what about those folks, a bit more than uh, 2 million folks, 60% people of color, what about them? And so you've seen Democrats actually stepping up in Congress led by Jim Claiborne and others saying, these folks are in states controlled by Republicans, they're still Americans and they need healthcare. And so there's been this effort to have, about how to do it and the approach is to funnel them into the private health insurance part of the Affordable Care Act and to provide very low subsidies, uh, excuse me, very high subsidies and no premiums and uh, support for the deductibles. So this has been a big effort. Um, Jim, I wanna you know, ask you a little bit about recent history because Republicans did control Congress and the White House after 2016. And um, you know, I understand your concerns about particularly the fiscal side about what's being proposed now, but did the Republicans in 2017 and 18 miss an opportunity? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think there's no question about it. They came at that whole situation completely from the wrong perspective. And you know, they kind of came in with repeal, added replace. Um, I think the idea that Republicans were gonna be able to wholesale get rid of this gigantic law and not do anything you know uh, in in its place that was never going to fly so then they had to get into well what's it going to be and I think they they really should have started from a different premise they should have said look we have a majority in the house and the senate and what can we pass what are some things that will move the ball in our direction which is essentially what the democrats are doing in build back better uh, so maybe I'm, you know, speaking out of both sides of my mouth here, but I mean, essentially kind of go through some incremental changes that they could do. They would move it toward a market oriented states, you know, a little bit more state flexibility, um, emphasize competition and consumer choice and market discipline. Uh, there could have been, there was a whole range of things they could have done. They would not have been wholesale, you know, trying to kind of claim that they undid the whole thing and replaced it with something entirely different, which they were never going to be able to do anyway. So I, I think they did miss a big opportunity, partly because they had a, a, a president who didn't really know the issue, an administration that didn't have a lot of seasoned people to come in and say, hey, wait a second, let's think carefully about how we go about this. They just dove right in and floundered for several months and, uh, you know, ended up obviously failing. I'm curious, uh, for a long time, you had conservatives, including Heritage, uh, but then Mitt Romney, when he was governor of Massachusetts, talking about something that, you know, had some similarity to what we see with the Swiss system, which is, you know, large private health insurance and providers, competition, but also you had uh, subsidies. Uh, there was a mandate that individuals had to get coverage, some regulations around, you know, what that coverage would look like. And it looked like, oh, maybe there'll be a convergence here uh, around that idea. Um, have conservatives given up on, on that idea? I don't think all conservatives have. I mean, I think it's a question of, well, I, you know, I can't speak for anybody else, but I think really it's a question of the details. You know, When the Affordable Care Act came along, there was a lot of talk, well, this is just the, the heritage plan. This is actually you know, 
the <laughs> the the plan of Don, Senate, former Senator Don Nichols from 1994 or whatever. And you know, like everything else in politics, there's a smidgen of truth to that. But <laughs> Senator Nichols would never have proposed a trillion dollars in subsidies and you know a massive Medicaid. So there was a lot of other things in the Affordable Care Act that were never going to draw a lot of bipartisan support. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a question of degree in a lot of these things. And um, having said all that, your basic premise of, could we have a competitive program with private coverage that is more disciplined and everybody's in it? Quite obviously, that's the kind of approach I think the country should be headed toward because for all the talk of, you know, Medicare for all and single payer, et cetera, et cetera, we have, you know, the big iron law of American politics is it's pretty entrenched. And so you have to kind of work with what you got. And that thing you just outlined, Larry, is within sight. Um, Sabrina, when the Trump uh, uh, administration was running things, there was a, a consternation, despite my uh, kind of frequent comments about actually something close to what Jim said, that these things get entrenched. They create their own politics. Um, um, but there was a lot of concern about some of the rules coming out of the Trump administration, particularly around what were known as associated health plans, that this would become kind of, um, um, you know, a, a real threat to the Affordable Care Act and to the, the kind of um, um, the, the, the ability of uh, insurance markets to move forward and for the marketplace to move forward. Where are we with that in terms of the Biden administration? It's been in office now almost a year. Um, have they been able to get their hands around what, what Trump did? Are they making progress on, on addressing those things? Great question. I, I think just um, for folks who may not be familiar, um, I think one of the, once the repeal effort failed under the Trump administration, um, they reverted to a regulatory strategy. And, and one piece of that strategy was to try to encourage people to sign up for uh, these health insurance products that uh, were essentially free from Affordable Care Act rules and regulations. So they didn't have to sign up people with pre-existing conditions and they didn't have to cover all the benefits and they could be sold a lot more cheaply. And um, these are sometimes called short-term plans, but there are other products in that family. Um, the Biden administration did indicate during the campaign and then also through an executive order that he intends to revisit um, those Trump administration rules and regulations. They haven't yet um, done rulemaking on that front, but I think part of that is just they've been drinking from a fire hose because of COVID-19 and the American Rescue Plan, and they've been making a lot of investments in healthcare.gov, and quite frankly, with the ARPA subsidies, all of a sudden, for a lot of folks, the marketplace plans, which are truly comprehensive, you know, fairly rich um, in their benefit designs, they become so much more affordable for folks. You know, these short-term plans, which are pretty skimpy, are, are less attractive. Um, Jim, as you know, uh, the Trump administration um, uh, started something known as the Individual Health Reimbursement Act in which employers could contribute uh, to paying the premiums for their employees. Uh, there were some concerns that maybe this would lead employees and employers maybe to move away from the employer uh, plans and, and, and maybe that would create a spiral. Is there a future for that, um, that approach, that Individual Health Reimbursement Act? Is that something that, that should be dropped or would you say you know, to the Biden administration, you know, don't, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's something here to work with. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not clear the Biden administration would necessarily oppose this idea, right? Because this is one of those that has a lot of cross, cross uh, interests associated with it. One, one of them being that you have this strange situation where the Trump administration was essentially proposing something that might move, you know, hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people from employer coverage into the Affordable Care Act exchanges, which is sort of, uh, for, for whatever reason, that irony never really broke through and people did, <laughs> didn't quite pick up on it as much as maybe they should have. So, 
that's, you know, how does the Biden administration react to something like that? I'm not entirely sure. I think it probably depends on their view on whether this incentive is going to influence plans that we're not offering that great a coverage maybe to people and it was spotty in any event and maybe it does allow more small employers to do something for their workers. So I think it's just kind of a, a mixed bag in terms of how one views this. From my mind, the, the general notion, there's a lot of conservatives, which I, I don't agree with this premise, They'd like to individualize the entire employer market. And I always think to myself, well, what are, I, don't, I don't see that as, there's lots of problems with the employer market, but I don't see moving everybody into the individual market as an improvement necessarily. It depends on what that new market would look like. Um, and you know, I, I'm, so I, I think they probably need to think twice about the, before they put all their eggs in that particular basket. There's been uh, talk um, about this firewall that's um, been kind of in place or talked about between the ACA and the employer uh, plans. And the Biden administration has made it clear that they don't want to disrupt the employer plans that cover about 150 million people. That seems quite reasonable. Do you think that this um, Individual Health uh, Reimbursement Act could actually uh, breach that firewall? And there are other ways that that could happen. Well, I, I think they wrote the regulation, maybe other, I'm not exactly sure I know every detail of this, but I think they wrote the regulation to essentially give a safe harbor to employers that if they did their contribution in this fashion, they would be in compliance with the provisions of the Affordable Care Act. So, that means that they, they can go pretty low, I think, on how much they give in an individual contribution to, you know, you, you, the employer puts the money in the HRA and then the worker takes it out of the HRA and pays their premium with it in an exchange. And I think, I, I don't know if there's a, they have to treat all their workers fairly and similarly, but I'm not sure that there's a requirement on the dollar amount because that would have drawn a lot of blowback from the employer community. So I think, I th I think they think they've got it, and I don't know of any lawsuits that seem to be challenging. Maybe, maybe Sabrina knows otherwise. I'm not aware of any lawsuits. I will say we we did um, some market level studies on how the individual uh, HRAs are, play, you know, sort of how they're being received by employers, brokers, and truth be told, the take up has been minimal at best, uh, and some of that is just. I think the inherent conservatism of employers that are purchasing benefits, not just for, them, for their employees, but for themselves and their families, um, combined with the COVID-19 pandemic, where you know, no one wants to be radically changing your benefit design in the middle of a global health crisis. Um, so that has really tamped down on the interest in arrangements. Um, now, you know, with subsidies going up in the marketplaces, if that's seen as a sustainable thing, um, maybe these arrangements will start to kick off a little bit more, but it's, you know, the interest has been anemic. Okay, so that's something to keep an eye on. I wanna to come to the cost control issue that, that Jim raised at the outset. When the Affordable Care Act was debated, there were two main objectives. One was to expand, um, access uh, to bring in more people who were previously underinsured or uninsured entirely. Um, the other part was this idea of bend the curve, which was to control costs and bring it down from double digit into something substantially lower. Um, and I think, you know, generally that hasn't worked so great. Um, we're on, if you go back to 2008, which was before the Affordable Care Act debate began, um, we were spending six point 6% of um, GDP on national health expenditures. It's now, last year it was 18%. And if you look at projections, you know it looks like it's heading towards 20%. That's not so great. And then if you look at the individual cost sharing, that's gone up considerably as well. And it's now seems to be stabilizing at a pretty high level. So um, you know, what do we do about this? Well, one of the main drivers of of uh, these uh, health increases has been medications. Sabrina, what can we say about the conversation among Democrats with regards to prescription drug 
uh, coverage and providing some kind of uh, discipline there? Um, well, so I think my sense is that the um, Democrats in Congress, and then you know the leadership at the White House recognized that uh, doing something about prescription drug prices is a political imperative. They can read the the polls uh, better than anybody, um, and uh, you know doing something about the backbreaking cost of prescription drugs is something they have to do. The problem is, um, you know, with just fifty votes in the Senate and a, a what are they at? A two-vote, three-vote margin in the House? I can't remember. It doesn't take much for the pharmaceutical industry to throw sand in the gears, as we have seen um, in this in the last few months of debate over the um, proposals to let Medicare uh, negotiate prescription drug prices and to um, let those um, uh, negotiations also help reduce uh, costs in the commercial market. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, um, the lobby is extremely effective on both sides of the aisle, and um, they've been able to hold off on um, truly significant um, uh, revenue. But uh, I'm, I, you know, I think there's there seems like they're kind of working their way towards um, some kind of compromise uh, to let some negotiation happen at least with Medicare. Uh, yeah, and for folks who haven't, uh, who may have just seen this story, that the Medicare Part B um, premiums shot up, you know, that's partly because of this story and the recent, you know, some would say questionable um, approval by the FDA of a, of a Alzheimer's medication with uncertain um, impact, and if there is an impact, it's kind of an early stage. So this kind of um, approach. Uh, is what a lot of people see as, you know, at least an early break. It is a departure in that we're going to see for the first time, possibly, negotiation over um, at least the most expensive uh, medications. And that was, if you go back to Medicare, that's always been forbidden. And now there may be a breach in that. Um, Jim Capretta, um, what would you say is the right approach to controlling um, the rising and, you know, alarming uh, uh, healthcare costs. Well, I'm, I'm a longtime advocate of much tougher market discipline in medical care, um, which will require lots of changes. I'm, I'm not a believer in, uh, in a laissez, you know, the people like say, oh, we have a laissez-faire healthcare system, which is really not an accurate description of what we got. What we have is a mess of subsidies, regulations, half, half measures, and so on. It's kind of a big mess. And if you really want market discipline, you have to kind of structure the market and allow the market to work in a way that, you know, pushes back on a lot of interests. You know, you push on the insurers, you push on the providers, you push a little bit on the consumers, making them having to take some responsibility for choosing under certain circumstances in a structured market. So, you know, lot, I, I, it's a very long answer, Larry, so I don't want to go into all the details, but basically I'd summarize it by saying you need a structured market where on the margins, the consumers have an incentive to seek out high value care. And that then involves lots of changes from the status quo. You know, I'm, I'd like to talk with you about this more because I have to say I was sympathetic to that perspective, but the marketplace set up by the ACA is, I think, provided a lot of, you know, interesting um, information, and the difficulty of of individuals to make choices given complex array. You know, remember Stephen Job who said, "I want a very simple, um, you know, computer," and his colleagues were saying, "No, we got to add this and that." He's like, "Simple. That's really what consumers want," and maybe there's some truth to that, but there's also all these other factors, including information, cost, um, and so that's, that's for a longer conversation. I know that's been a longstanding um, conservative view, and I'm just not sure consumers are up to it, to be honest with you. Um, let me ask you, though, about one of the things that was in the original Affordable Care Act that I thought you might have mentioned, which was the so-called Cadillac tax. Was, is that the right direction? Do you think that was a, 
a good policy initially? I do. I supported it. Was, I used to joke it was my favorite provision in the Affordable Care Act, and I was basically alone in America in taking that point of view. So could you describe, uh, really, it? Could you describe it for folks what it is? Well, the Cadillac tax was a provision that basically said to the employer community, if you offered premiums above a certain threshold, you had to pay an excise tax on the excess above the, above the limit. And the excise tax was pretty high, it was 40%. So it was punitive. And what the intention was, and it would have worked, would have been to tell the employers, hey, don't offer plans with premiums above a certain threshold. Do what you need to do working with your employees to get a lower cost, higher value plan. And maybe, frankly, offer to your employees something of a choice, you know, that if they want to go above the threshold, they have to pay a little bit out of their own money. Um, I take, uh, you know, there's lots of evidence in the medical care system that when presented with a structured market, consumers do opt for often, <laughs> or at least enough of them, opt for something that's a little bit less expensive. They don't necessarily want to pay out of their own pocket if they don't have to. Uh, so you have to write the rules in a right, the correct way, which, as you know, is not easy to do. Sabrina, do you share the same level of confidence that that if the rules are written properly, that consumers would have this, this kind of um, you know, disciplining effect on providers and insurers? Um, I think it's, it's more than just designing the right, writing the right rules. Um, I do think so much uh, comes down to uh, the consumer experience. And I think Larry, you alluded to this. I mean, uh, the challenges that consumers have to make optimal choices when when it's presented. That's a an interesting um, marketplace to look at. Um, they, you know, as in every other ACA marketplace, uh, consumers are largely making plan choices based on premiums. Um, but the way they've set um, their marketplace up, um, which is up for, for certain um, People under a certain income range is largely Medicaid plans that are paying providers mostly Medicaid rates. Um, they have been able to keep their premiums uh, relatively low, and the plans can keep their quite fiercely on price. Um, but again, they've been able to leverage not just um, this sort of competitive dynamic, but this Medicaid chassis um, to keep premiums pretty low in their market. I've been kind of rolling in questions from the audience. Um, and um, Jim, here's a question I think it was uh, directed at you and your comment about favoring a more disciplined market. Um, does a more disciplined market include limits on profits on both providers and particularly for-profit insurers? Well, I, you know, I potentially, I mean, if that was needed to maybe get people to buy into the, uh, to the whole package of changes that would be needed, I'm, I'm not necessarily averse to that, but that isn't what really what the disciplining mechanism is. It's, you have to have a, a disciplining mechanism that says to the providers and insurers and providers of services, medical services, that you have to give them an incentive to want to lower their premiums and lower their prices for what they're charging when they deliver care to patients. And that doesn't happen unless there is some uh, market moving aspect to lowering their price. In other words, when they lower their price, they get a, a, a larger response from consumers picking them when they need services. Okay, so that's what's missing. Okay, and getting there is not easy. I don't, I'm not kidding you. But, you know, one example I'd point to here is Part D has a lot of problems. Part D in Medicare, it's a drug benefit, but it is designed so that on the margins, the beneficiaries don't want to pay more premiums. And so you have all these choices, which could be more standardized, but premiums are pretty steady. And that's really because the insurers don't want to raise their premiums, because if they do, it's got to come out of the beneficiary's pocket. And they know they don't, they don't like that. Okay, great. Um, one of the uh, original parts of the Affordable Care Act is something known as the uh, 1332 waiver. 
And if you look at the beginning of it, the, the idea was basically to give Bernie Sanders some hope that through this waiver, uh, if a state decided to go this route, they could pass single payer public option. Um, Sabrina, how has 1330 waiver been used mostly? Um, the vast majority, can you guys hear me okay? I've been having some sound issues, but you guys can hear me? Okay. Um, the vast majority of the um, section 1332 waivers to date have been just like the one in Minnesota, which is to help support a, a private market reinsurance program. Um, there are a couple of states, Colorado and Nevada uh, in particular, that um, are looking at um, programs that sort of create a public, you know, people, some people call it a public option, but it's I mean, you can quibble about the um, terminology there, but uh, that, that where essentially they would try to offer a lower premium product um, and use the Section 32, 1332 waiver to draw down some extra federal dollars to, to fund other priorities. So um, those are states that are looking at sort of a new model for 1332 that I think might be interesting to watch. And there, of course, there are many states that are looking at um, using 1332 waivers to pursue um, single payer and public option. Um, has there been much success in that front? Well, <laughs> I think the, the jury's still out. Um, the, and again, this all comes down to what you define as a public option plan. I think if, if it's the idea is to use the power of the government as a purchaser to bring down prices, uh, I would say no state has really been successful at that uh, yet, um, at least in the private market. Um, Washington is taking a crack at it. And as I mentioned, Colorado and Nevada are as well. Um, uh, but, you know, again, just as in Washington, D.C., trying to um, uh, enact something that takes a whack at provider revenue is really hard to do. One of the, um, the dynamics that we've looked at with the Affordable Care Act after it was passed in 2010 and then implemented is that it's had um, you know, often uh, unexpected uh, effects on other parts of the insurance system. And one of those effects was that we saw folks who were in the individual insurance market turn to the marketplace, and folks who were in the individual market saw their premiums skyrocket. And so the government has responded by stepping in and paying for the most expensive um, uh, uh, cases in terms of individuals who are most sick. And this is this is the reinsurance idea. Minnesota um, has uh, as as it's gotten stuck in the bind because Minnesota has something called a basic health plan. We know it as MinCare in Minnesota that provides coverage for those who are just above the poverty line, but maybe don't qualify uh, for marketplace and the subsidies. Um, and as a result of the Trump administration, they came in and um, restricted the revenue that uh, the state had been getting previously um, under the prior administration. Sabrina, is there any hope for Minnesota actually getting um, its money back? <laughs> um, yeah, so Minnesota and New York are the only states um, that have taken advantage of this um, basic health uh, plan or program um, provision of the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, I actually, I, 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 I think it's a, it's a great model and it's, I think, worked very well both for Minnesota and New York. Uh, I'd love to see more states look at it. Um, the good news for Minnesota is that with the increase in subsidies that were in ARPA and then potentially now with Build Back Better, um, the state should be getting, being be able to draw down more um, uh, financing for its VHP from the federal government. Um, I think actually it, it, uh, they just um, received a, a notice from the feds last week or something that they're going to be getting um, some more money. So that's helpful. Yeah, and I think state legislators are always looking for ways to, to maybe use the money that was taken from Minnesota. Jim Capretta, when you've got your, your, your great ideas for health reform in your desk, 
do you have a, an idea for how um, Republican states could use the 1332 waiver? Well, first of all, I like to think that my ideas are maybe even Democratic governors might like them, you know, so I, I try to try to design them in a way that it'll work, not, not necessarily just adhere to some particular preconceived ideology. But, um, you know, look, if I were, you know, advising any state, I think I'd say that, uh, you know, doing a few things can really help. One is uh, I'm with as many Democratic governors who want to standardize the benefits in the exchanges and make the comparisons clearer and cleaner so that the consumer can see that the big difference between two plans is the premium, not the cost sharing, et cetera, okay? So standardization really makes a difference in simplifying the market for the consumer. That can have a big effect, actually. The insurers hate it and fight it every way, every step of the way, but it does make a difference. Um, the second thing I do is kind of build on this price transparency effort that's underway and start to do some things to bring the outliers in the line. You know, there's a lot of noise out there, um, but it's quite clear that some people are getting gouged by the provider community. And I'd, I'd you know, start to use the levers of the state to say, you know, we're not gonna tolerate that anymore, that there has to be much more narrowing and lowering of these outrageous prices uh, under certain circumstances where the consumer is particularly vulnerable. Sabrina, do you have a view about that? Um, yeah, I, uh, I I agree with with um, Jim that there's a lot of stuff states can do and and um, to increase enrollment and to improve affordability. They don't even necessarily need to apply for a 1332 waiver for a lot of this stuff. And Jim, you've talked quite eloquently about um, reducing you know some of the friction that people feel around the enrollment process um, that can be a deterrent. And um, I think, for example, of a state like California that is um, going full steam ahead on auto enrollment, which is not pure auto enrollment because the person still has to consent to, um, to enroll in a plan, but it's a great leap forward in just reducing some of those bureaucratic hassles that people have to go through to get into a plan. And, that, that combined with investing in outreach and consumer assistance to help folks who have complicated household or income situations, um, that kind of stuff can go a long way. And it doesn't necessarily require massive radical reforms. Um, if you go back to World War II, um, there was a big effort to control prices and wages. And one of the strategies by the government uh, to keep workers you know, at the plants and churning out planes and tanks and so forth was to provide non-wage benefits. That is um, a tax, favorable tax treatment for the employer's uh, health insurance. And that seemed like a great you know, strategy during World War II. Lo and behold, it's one of our largest entitlement programs. And it's uh, helped to build what I think of as you got the government welfare system, you've got the private welfare system um, in which you've got a large um, employer-sponsored health insurance system. Um, and this is what many, many families rely on for their coverage. But it's got some problems. And um, some of the problems is that employers have um, not always jumped in on this. Um, and the costs have gone up um, and <clears throat> as well, Wages have stagnated uh, because of the high costs of the, of the plans. Um, so, Jim Capretta, um, do you have ideas about um, how Congress might get involved in taking a look at these um, health insurance tax exemptions to encourage employers to offer uh, coverage and to stabilize the employer-sponsored insurance system? Well, first, I, I, I want to just say that I agree with the basically so the premise is that of your question, which is that kind of this involves public policy. There's a lot of employers out there that kind of have in their mind, well, the CEOs in particular, these big companies say, I'm going to fix my health care plan. And they try on their own, you know, to kind of do make a big dent in, in health care. 
And for any of us who've been around a while, these things kind of circle around every five, seven years, some new company will pop up saying they're going to fix healthcare, right? And it never happens. Why doesn't that happen? Well, because it's a collective action problem. They're all competing with each other for labor. And as you indicated so well, health benefits is like compensation. So there, it's part of attracting workers. So all these HR departments out there, they don't view it as a problem. They view it as a good news thing they want to offer their workers. So if you're going to change this, you do have to do public policy, just as you indicated, Larry. So that's a long-winded throat clearing, so I don't have to actually answer the question. But uh, so the question is, what do you do about it? Well, I, I think, you know, we've now, get back to the Cadillac tax, I'm going to simplify this by saying the federal government really should just provide more of a tax credit to the employer community to continue to do what they're doing on a per worker basis, but add a lot more rules to the credit to say, to discipline it, to make it work better, to, to get rid of some of the noise, to make it more seamless and portable, to have some rules of the road to the employer provision, to make it work on behalf of workers so that they aren't stuck in jobs, they can leave easily, that there's discipline on costs, that there's choice, that there's good high value plans offered. There used to be way back when, here's one crazy idea, why don't we bring back the HMO Act, which required employers under certain circumstances to offer a low premium, high value HMO to their workers. So it's a long, complicated story, but I think those are the kinds of things that need to be done. Um, Sabrina, there are a bunch of, not a bunch, there are two questions here um, from, from uh, folks who are, who are listening, wondering about single payer. And Jim has given, I think, a very eloquent explanation for how the employer-based uh, insurance system could be sustained, strengthened, maybe expanded. Um, is the alternative to basically clear out or diminish substantially that employer system and, and really move towards full insurance through a single payer system? Well, first of all, I, you know, when somebody asks about single payer, I always sort of ask, well, what, what, what's the end goal of a single payer system? Um, if it's universal coverage, if that's the goal or as close to universal coverage as we can get, we can actually get there without a single payer system. I mean, Massachusetts, I think, I mean, I think they're at like 96% coverage rate. I mean, it's as close as you can get to universal insurance. They do not have a single payer system. They have, you know, Medicaid and then marketplace over it um, with some state you know, state-funded subsidies. Um, so if the goal is universal coverage, you know, I, I am more of the camp that I don't think we need to kind of wave the magic wand and pretend we don't have this system of employer-based coverage that we've had since World War II. Um, we can get there um, building on top of what we have. Um, I just, I also, I mean, just, if you just look at how challenging getting the Affordable Care Act done has been, or um, you know, this discussion over just giving Medicare a little bit of authority to negotiate prescription drug prices. The idea, the idea that in any conceivable political arrangement, we would ever get rid of our employment-based system is, is just sort of like fantasy, right? So we're kind of stuck with, given our current political dynamic, unless we sort of burn it all down, um, building on top of what we've got. Um, so that's that's my view on, on It's kind of interesting. Jim Capretta has a similar view about building on what we've got, um, uh, you know, in a more of a market uh, conservative uh, sort of slant. Jim, I've got a straight on economics question for you. One of our really smart um, health people here in Minnesota, Jim Hart, is the shortage of healthcare workers driving up prices, or is that yet to come? It certainly is and will. Yes, I mean, you know, the, I like to say that the health sector isn't totally immune to the laws of supply and demand, and so if they have to start paying a lot more to attract the nurses they need to run these health systems, which they do then there, you know, prices will go up accordingly. So market discipline really is about finding good efficiencies. You know, how do you get rid of costs that aren't necessary? 
And there's lots of careful studies that say it's probably about 25%. But the trick is finding the right 25% and just wholesale getting rid of you know, nurses as part of your staffing system probably isn't the best place to start. So I think you know, these systems are gonna have to grapple with inflation and how do they become more productive and efficient? I know all of them will write in saying, we're doing everything we can, uh, but uh, you know, this process never ends. So, Sabrina, one of the uh, parts of the emerging Build Back Better uh, legislation is to provide more consumer assistance. Um, why is that so important? And what has not always been there? Um, well, so there's two things that are in the Build Back Better uh, plan that I think are terrific. Um, one is to uh, expand um, the consumer assistance that's available to help people apply for Medicaid or other subsidies um, through the marketplace. Uh, and that can be an extremely complicated process for a lot of folks, particularly if you don't have kind of a regular salaried job, but you have different sources of income. So getting help with that process is really key. And I'm, I'm happy to see the Biden administration increase that through the Navigator program. Um, but the bill, the Build Back Better bill would also provide support for um, state-based consumer assistance programs. Um, and these are really uh, people who are set up to help after you've enrolled, if you have a problem with your insurance or you get a, a bill that you don't understand um, or a benefit denied, um, those can be extremely burdensome on consumers, time-consuming, frightening if you get, you know, billed by a provider that, you know, that's $10,000. I mean, something you hear about some of these medical bills um, that can really just cripple a, a family financially. So um, these CAP programs would be available to help people, you know, file appeals or dispute a bill or understand their rights. Um, so I'm, I'm thrilled to see that some funding from the federal government will be coming their way. Uh, Jim Capretta, as we've been talking about, the Affordable Care Act has had an impact on other insurance markets, uh, the large group employer market, the individual, the small group markets. And um, there's been some talk about easing some of the boundaries between individual and small group markets, which have separate um, regulatory and market conditions. Does that sort of thing make sense to you? Should we kind of relax some of those regulatory barriers? Should we be looking to encourage, let's say a self-employed individual to go and feel like there's a, a group of one that they could go into and, and find the product that they need? Yeah, I, I, I tend to believe that below a certain level of employer size, it's probably best just to have one regulatory structure that tries to drive value and competition amongst the plans offering coverage uh, to benefit both those workers and the people in the, that are outside the employment system in the individual market. Um, you know, I know that might be controversial and so on, but I, I think, you know, Bigger pools probably are better than smaller pools in general. And I think we want to leverage more lives to get the premium down for everybody. And so, you know, I've always been kind of of the idea, well, if you're a 10 person employer, you know, maybe it is best just to try to merge that into the exchange system and drive some value for those people that way. Because there, there's a lot of churn and employment and so on. So anyway, that, that's my short answer there. And Sabrina, do you worry that, yes, there could be positives, as Jim is talking about, in terms of merging some of these insurance markets and maybe looking for ways to relax regulations? Do you worry that consumers might be exposed, though, um, to, um, you, know, you know, different sets of problems? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the more people are forced to kind of be proactive about changing their coverage and checking to make sure their doctors in network or, you know, gee, does this formulary match up with formulary I had before? Um, it is not easy. I mean, you know, I, somebody asked earlier about single payer and if I could, I, you know, roll back the clock <laughs> to 1945 or 50, whatever it was then the IRS did that rule, I would, you know, and we'd have something that looks a lot more like Germany or England, but we don't, um, and so people, unfortunately, it's um, are, are are forced to like sort of 
rewrite, you know, their whole coverage uh, when they change employment or um, move from Medicaid to the marketplace or marketplace to Medicare. It's um, it be quite burdensome for consumers. Um, we've run out of time. I want to thank Sabrina, uh, Colette, and uh, Jim. Um, excuse me, uh, Sabrina Corlett and Jim Capretta for joining us.